Turn your Bible to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to be. You know, our culture very much is a for or against culture. I think you most obviously see that in politics. You're either for this person or you're against this person. Really, it's an and. You're for this person and against that person. And I think it's been that way for a long time. I remember when I was seven years old, there was a presidential election. I think it was 1988. And so uh, I was super, uh, uh, you know, uh, wise and mature in 1988. And I'm in my elementary school. My elementary school had, uh, was the place that you went and vote, voted, you know, for that region. And and so I'm out in the hallway, and I don't remember why I'm out in the hallway, but I'm out in the hallway, and there's a line of people, and I didn't know it at the time, but they were there to vote. Now, what you have to know about me is I am a firstborn people pleaser. Anybody else a firstborn people pleaser? Yeah, if, you, if you're not, if you had the privilege of being born second or third, let me tell you about the tremendous weight that we carry as the firstborn. Uh, we do not like to be in trouble. We do not like to disappoint people. Uh, we don't want to, uh, for you to have unmet expectations. Uh, it would hurt our feelings if we hurt your feelings. You know, second-born people, they just do whatever they want and let their chips fall where they may. Their hearts are incredibly hard. And, uh, okay. I think I was speaking about my sister there for a second. Um, just kidding. So, first-born people pleaser... I want to be in the right place. I want to do the right thing. I don't want people to be disappointed with me. And so I'm walking through the hallway. I see this kind of line of people. They're there to vote. I don't know that this time. Somebody official with a vest or some kind of badge is is going through. And and she's asking, have you voted yet? Have you voted yet? Have you voted yet? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't voted yet. (laughs) Are we supposed to vote? I didn't know we were supposed to vote. Nobody told me about a vote. But I I guess that's what we're supposed to do today. I, I, I can't be left out of this. If there's expectation for me to vote, then I'm going to vote. So I stand in line behind the adults. The adults go. I get up to the table, and I'm like, I haven't voted yet. They're like, good, you know. <laughs> for or against. We see it in politics. You can see it in your own marriage sometimes. Like, let's use my marriage as an example. A couple of weeks ago, Amanda was gone. She was out of the country, and so I was watching the children all by myself, uh, and when Amanda leaves, the military comes in. That's the way we do it, and so the kids are up at a certain time, and they're doing this from this hour to this hour, and daddy's doing some other stuff at this hour for this hour, like sleeping, and, uh, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do that, and then it's at school and homework. We've got a whole schedule lined up, but the great thing is that it's well-ordered. The bad thing is any unexpected thing can throw the whole thing off. Like, I open up Jackson's backpack why Amanda is out of the country and it's picture day the next day and so I have to make some choices I have to choose the background I don't know why they give parents this choice but they do they give a lot of different scenic backgrounds and so uh, I get to choose and so I choose one I don't really care because this is his second picture of the year I don't know why he needs two pictures to show me what he was like in second grade but apparently he does so I'm not really caring that much I'm like I already paid for the fall one that's good enough who cares about this one so I pick a background put it in his folder put it in his backpack it's off to school the next day we get up the next morning I'm not thinking that it's picture day and even if I am I'm thinking like who cares I already paid for the legitimate one in the fall you know, and so I send him off to school. Uh, the other day, Amanda gets home, uh, opens up his backpack, and his pictures have come home, and she was immediately against it. Um, so we're having a little conflict, so I thought I'd just invite you into our marital conflict and let you decide. Uh, I mean, I think that's strong.
It's like Middle Earth <laughs> meets punk rock. It's a good thing he's handsome. Is uh, for or against? That's what we're going to see in Colossians chapter two, actually today. For or against? You heard the phrase. Uh, you're either with us or against us. And what we're going to see in the scripture today is that there are some very real things that are against you, like cosmic things, not just stress, not just life situation, but cosmic things are against you, but someone is with you, or really the more accurate way to say that is you are with someone, so what's against you is going to be nullified and void. Colossians chapter 2 Verse 11, in him, that's Jesus, also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, if you've read the Bible at least one time, you know that the Bible mentions the word circumcision way more than any of us are using it in our normal situation. I just feel like we need to say that out loud because it's kind of awkward, not something that you've talked about maybe since you're son was born in the hospital and it was too much then but the bible is always mentioning it and the reason the bible is always mentioning it is because it was so important to who the people of god were you go back to the very beginning when god says i'm going to choose one man and that from this one man i'm going to form a whole people and so he starts with abraham Abraham's just like everyone else. Nothing unusual or unique about him. And God says, my favor's landing on this man and and his children, his children's children, and on down through the generations are gonna be my people and I'm gonna give them a distinguishing mark. And that mark is for their males to be circumcised, which was uncommon at the time. So you have all the way through the Bible's history, males being circumcised as an identifying mark that we are a part of the people of God. So, If you remember from last week, I mentioned that in Colossae, it was like a melting pot of different faiths. You had the idolatry that they came from. They were worshiping gods like Zeus and Aphrodite, Aphrodite, those Roman and Greek gods. Then you had Judaism coming from one side, following the Old Testament law. And then out of Judaism, you had people preaching Jesus as being sufficient for salvation. So it was all mixed together, and you can imagine how confusing that would be without anybody to clarify. And so that's what Paul is doing in the, in the, the letter to the Colossians. He's, uh, he's clarifying what is true, what things are true. And so one of the confusing parts is, hey, we're Christians now. We believed in Jesus. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was circumcised. So do we need to also take that on? And you, you had people saying, yes, you do need to take that on. And Paul is, is saying, no, your circumcision is not of the flesh, meaning it's not physical. It's spiritual. It's not, it's not a removing of physical flesh. It's a removing of spiritual flesh, that sinful nature of, that, we, that we all carry and that we're all born with. So we're with Christ in this circumcision. Christ has made us the people of God, not just some identifying physical mark. Then he goes on, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now remember, Paul is Jewish. He himself was circumcised, identifying Mark, a people of God, but then he believed in Jesus. Now he's also been circumcised spiritually. And he's saying, you don't need to worry about taking on this identifying Mark. 
Because as the gospel was raised up out of the Jewish people and spread to the whole world, another mark was given to the church. Another mark was given to the people of God. Baptism. Baptism is an identifying mark that you are a part of God's people in Christ. And just like circumcision was not merely symbolic, it was holy to God's people. Baptism is not merely symbolic to us, it should be holy to us. What does the scripture say? You're buried with Christ in baptism. Meaning when you go under the water, you are identifying that Jesus was dead. And you will believe in his death as salvation for your sins. And when you come up out of the water, you're identifying with Jesus' resurrection. That you have new life found in Christ. That you are a part of the people of God. So we're with Christ in circumcision. We're with Christ in baptism. Verse 14. Or verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So you're with Christ in circumcision. You're with Christ in baptism. But what you have against you is this record of debt. Now, we don't like debt. We do not like owing people anything. I told you a few months ago that Jackson, who's eight and obviously handsome, loves money. I've warned him, root of all kinds of evil, uh, but loves money. And, um, and so when we give chores to the kids, we offer sometimes financial reward depending on if I want to go upstairs or not to help them, right? So if I don't want to go upstairs, I'll say I'll give you a dollar to clean it up in this amount of time. And so the other day, uh, I yell upstairs, hey, the upstairs is a mess. Uh, I'll give you 50 cents or a dollar if you clean it up in the next five minutes. And so Annabeth is right on it. She is excited. She's ready to do it. But Jackson, he's, he's has, he's has, he has a little nest egg, right? So he, he, he got Christmas money. He got birthday money. So he's got like this invisible amount of money built up. And he doesn't actually have it. It's like in the bank account of my memory. Well, the problem is I can't really remember how much is in there. And so... So he, so I say, hey, Jackson, dollar for you to clean up. And he's like, no, I'm good. I got money. <laughs> I, oh, wait, wait, wait. Whoa, whoa. What do you mean you have money? He's like, yeah, I got 150 bucks. Wait a second. Where did you get $150? And he's like, well, Nana gave me this, and I got this for Christmas, and I got this in the car, and I got this, and this, and this. And he it kind of started tallying up in, past 100, and I'm like, hmm, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but he was totally unmotivated, right, because he had money. So what I started doing, because I'm a creative father, is I said, well, I'm deducting $5 for that bad attitude. Then cleanup was on. Because <laughs> we don't like to owe. We don't like the, a debt. We don't, we don't like when something is missing. So, but what happens, though, because we don't like that feeling of owing something to somebody or being without, not being able to stand on our own. When you hear and I hear that we owe a record of debt, we think, well, I got to pay it back. I got to get it back. If my sin has caused a debt, well, then I'm going to be righteous. And I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to try hard. And I'm going to do the right things until we're even. But what does the scripture say about our righteousness? That our righteousness is like filthy rags. 
So the terrible news for us is the more we try to pay it back with our righteousness, the more in debt we get. But thankfully, we're with Jesus. When it says canceling the record of debt, biblical scholars believe that Paul is using some wordplay with that phrase, record of debt. I want you to turn to the left to John chapter 19. In verse 17, it says, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So Pilate, he's the Roman governor. He's the one who has to give the final stamp of approval on Jesus' death sentence. It was common in the Roman Empire, historians tell us, for them to put your crime on top of your cross. Whatever you did to deserve execution, they would let everyone know about it. And it says that all the Jews could see him because it was near the city. Commonly, what the Roman soldiers would do is they would execute people near a main road so that as people came in and out of the city, they would be warned. This is what this person did, and if you follow in their steps, this execution and this style might happen to you, so be on your best behavior. So Jesus' crime was being king of the Jews. That wasn't actually a crime. Pilate is really torn about this if you read the account, but he's afraid of the Jewish religious leaders, and so he does put his final stamp on Jesus being crucified. So everyone who comes in can read Jesus' crime being king of the Jews, and it's written for everyone to see in Latin, which was the Roman language, in Aramaic, which was the national Jewish language, and in Greek, which is the commercial language. So everybody knows. And biblical scholars believe that when Paul talks about the record of debt, he's referring back to that sign that hung above Jesus' head. So you can imagine, then, what your record of debt would be. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says. What would have hung above your head? Liar, deceitful, arrogant, cold, insecure, manipulative, rebellious. We all have a record of debt hanging over our head. Let's read on. Verse 23. 
When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there so that they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know, the New Testament tells us that there's a person missing in this account of Jesus' death. In all the accounts, in the the account of Jesus' crucifixion in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and here in John, the New Testament tells us that there's someone missing, someone there that we can't see. And that person is you. Because Romans chapter 6, verse 8, among others, says, for you died with him. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I was crucified with Christ. You were there that day. For the foundation of the world was laid. The cross was already in place. And Jesus, with his great life, holiness, purity, righteousness, made room in his death for you. So in the physical realm, when we look at the cross of Jesus, we just see king of the Jews hanging there. The only sign in the physical realm, in the spiritual realm, what was also hanging on the cross right next to king of the Jews was your record and my record. A sign that says liar, a sign that says thief, a sign that says gossip, a sign that says impurity, a sign that says rebel. That's what Colossians chapter two says that he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Thankfully, it wasn't just him making room in his death for us, but also in his resurrection. It says in verse 13, back in Colossians, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. So there's room in the resurrection. So to believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead is to believe that you also have been raised from the dead. So you're with Jesus in circumcision, you're with Jesus in baptism. Your record of debt was against you, but that's been canceled out because it's been nailed to the cross of Jesus. But there's one more thing against you, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. These rulers and authorities most likely means Satan and those who are under his authority because when Paul uses rulers and authorities, most often in his writings, that's who it's referring to. I want to show you two pictures of the same room. I want you to turn with one 
hand to Job chapter 1 and with the other hand to Revelation chapter 5. Job to the left and Revelation to the right. Job chapter 1. Two scenes in the same room. Because what happens is the rulers and authorities, Satan and those who are under his authority, they take your record of debt and they turn it against you and accuse you with it. So this is a picture of that. The picture of the throne room of God. Job chapter 1 verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going up Fro and uh, to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So what Satan is doing is he's walking up and down the earth. He's looking for someone who is faithful to God, who is faithless in a moment, so he can accuse that person in front of God. Because Satan hates God. And he hates that we are the people of God. And so he wants to show God that God made a bad decision with you. You're not worthy of all the goodness and the grace and the mercy that God has poured out on your life. That's what he's doing here to Job. Job's not worthy of the lands and the houses and the families. Because if you take that away, he'll, he'll curse you. This is what Satan does in the throne room of God is he accuses people like you and I. He takes our very real weaknesses. He takes our very real faults and pushes them forward into the presence of God. But I want to show you another picture in that same throne room. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, that doesn't mean anything to us. We're like, who cares about a scroll? But obviously, this is such an important deal that John, when he realizes that nobody can open the scroll, he just begins to weep. I mean, men, when was the last time that you could accurately say that you wept? It's probably been a long time, or if it's been recent, you're going to pretend that it's been a long time. So what kind of heartbreak is he feeling to just admit when no one was found worthy I I just wept 
And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, behold. The lion of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Behold, Jesus. Verse six, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits God sent out into all the earth. What that means is it means Jesus still had his wounds on him. They were fresh. The nails in his hands and the scars on his feet and the wound in his sides. He's more glorious than the English language can fully describe, which is why we get these seven horns and seven eyes. Verse 7, And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard uh, around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped this is why satan is disarmed in the throne room of god this is why satan when he comes to accuse you of what you are guilty of he has no real accusation because in the same room that satan would accuse you jesus has saved you In the same room that the enemy of your soul would come and point out all of your debts is the very same room that Jesus pushes forward his hands. And says clean. Blotted out. Wiped away. Jesus' blood on the cross. And his eternal scars eternally disarm every ruler and authority who would come against you. So three applications, then we'll go home. Three, what do I do now? Number one, take less credit, but more confidence. Take less credit but more confidence. And none of what we have talked about today is your righteousness, your ability, your giftedness, your talent. Is it lifted up? So take no credit. And the most important things in this life, take no credit. But take confidence. Because you are with Christ, there are some amazing things that are now true about you. Romans chapter five, verse one says, 
that with Christ you have peace with God. Romans chapter 8 verse 17 says that you are fellow heirs with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5 says that you are alive with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 says that right now you're seated in this room. You're also seated in heavenly places with Christ. Colossians chapter 3 verse 7 says that your life is hidden with Christ. Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 20 verse 4 says that you are going to reign with Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 32 says that with Christ you have everything that you need. Romans chapter 8 verse 17 says that you are glorified with Christ. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 9 says that there's no favoritism in Christ. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 4 that says one day you are going to appear in glory with Christ. So take confidence. Take less credit, but take confidence. Develop a backbone. Know who you are. Know what God has called you to be. And be it unashamedly. Take confidence. Number two, take yourself less seriously. I want you to do something with me. I want you to repeat after me. Ha, ha, ha. See, it's possible for Christians to laugh. Listen, I think honestly, if if I'm just being honest with you, it's what the world needs to see before you bring Jesus into the mix. In the same way that Jesus has been tested just like you've been tested, the world and our culture around us, our friends and family, they need to know I'm just like you. I laugh, I cry, things are great, I have fun, I'm normal. Let's just say that out loud together, I'm normal. Or God, please make me normal. Because you notice in all of this, we are the benefactors, not the producers. Not one time were we lifted up in this whole passage that we've looked at today. Not one time did anybody tell us what to do. All that we've read is a gift that has been sent to us, not one that we sent to somebody else, not one that we offered God. So what that means is because you're not at the center of this. You're not the one holding it all together. I think many of us are living under the assumption that Jesus has saved us and now expects perfect from us. He doesn't. What he wants from you is faith. So live by faith and not by the law. Live by faith and not by rules. Be free of being perfect. Hebrews chapter 11 is the the chapter of faith where all the heroes are laid out. By faith, Moses. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, David. All people flawed, twisted, and broken, but faithful. So stop trying to be perfect and be faithful. Live by faith and not by the law. Don't think that your perfection or your pursuit of perfection is what determines how God feels about you because you're with Christ and that's what matters. And then the last thing, number three, stop believing that God is against you. It's our go-to when we don't understand what is happening to us, when someone gets sick or we get sick or we pray and it doesn't come through, we just automatically assume that God is against us. We've done something wrong or he is not good. But we know better than that. We've seen that. Today, we're with Christ. And everything that was against us, God has 
come against himself. See, it's a miserable thing to live on a merry-go-round of God hates me, he likes me, God hates me, he likes me, he hates me, he likes me, he hates me, he likes me. And my invitation for you today is just to step off the merry-go-round. No one asked you to be on it to begin with. But we live on that because we look at the immensity of what Jesus has done and then we look at the smallness of our lives and we're like, I can never pay it back. We know that. And so we think the answer, instead of trying to pay it back with our righteousness, is just to live under the weight of self-condemnation. That if we hate ourselves enough, then God will be happy that he did this or it's just all mixed up and twisted. Conviction, yes. If you're in the middle of sin, stop it. Just say, stop it. Come on, stop it. Some of us need to stop it. In Jesus' name, stop it. But when you do, and when you come to God in brokenness and forgiveness, let it go. Don't bring it back up to condemn yourself. You cannot atone for your own sin by condemning yourself year after year after year after year after year. There is no condemnation in Christ, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Take less credit, but take a lot of confidence today because you are with Christ. Don't take yourself so seriously. Live by faith and not by perfection because the debt against you has been nailed to the cross, paid for from that moment on into eternity. And do not let anyone, including yourself, convince you that God is against you. He is for you. Because you are with Christ and God is for Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the power of your word to set us free. And I pray that some of us would step off the carousel of trying to determine every single day how you're feeling towards us. pray that we would just believe by faith that we're with Christ we're loved in Christ, we're whole in Christ pure in Christ in the spirit of prayer Jesus said that he knows his sheep by name which means he knows you by name and that his sheep know him And they know his voice, which means that it's possible for you today to listen closely, to hear the voice of Jesus Jesus, if he's speaking to you. So I'd love for you just to tune your ears maybe today and maybe what you might hear is, I love you and I like you and I am not against you. And that may be some ministry that your soul needs today some truth that your mind needs to believe. God, speak that deep in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.